Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Joe Wright. We're at Left Coast Cellars. It's June 15th, 2021. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine? <laughs> why wine? It's been a long time. There's been nothing else in my life, quite frankly, that, you know, as far as occupational stuff goes. I started making wine when I was 21, and I'm 49. So, um, God, what was before that? Just kind of a little bit of school and partying and <laughs> figuring out what, uh, yeah, not really, it just fell into it. So, you know, that's a story in and of itself. But, um, but yeah, it's all I've done. Um, maybe one day I'll retire and crank on mountain bikes, you know, part time. But otherwise, that's all I know how to do is grow grapes and make wine from them. Well, let's get into the story then of how wine. So tell me about kind of before that uh, upbringing, where did you grow up and uh, where did you go to school? Uh, grew up in Burbank, California, in SoCal. Um, just, you know, just basic, you know, through high school, a little bit of college, never finished. Um, and uh, yeah, just that's, that's kind of, that was it. As far as like, you know, I kind of made a leap from there. I was going to, let's see, so out of high school, I was getting really interested. My father was really an avid outdoorsman, so he was kicking me out to, like, you know, up into the high Sierras. We were spending long trips, backpacking, backcountry stuff. And uh, I ended up getting to know kind of, like, the area up there as far as, like, some of the lodges, some of the, the work crews, actually, and um, um, started going back and working. So I was really interested and this is kind of like where the headwaters of the, um, like the Edison company, basically where all the water from, uh, comes from for Los Angeles, LA basin. Mm -hmm. So I was getting to, you know, I met, you know, knew the dam tender and the whole crew up there and was really intrigued by just the massive amount of work that had been done probably during the 1940s um, to get water down to LA. It was fascinating. You're way out in the backcountry and there's these, these massive lakes um, and underground tunnels and waterways and waterworks that just, you know, let it flow. And um, that was probably one of the first things that just intrigued me in life in general as far as an occupation might go. So I was looking towards studying towards that, towards a degree in hydrology. Um, and helping, you know, ultimately pretty narrow view, but just like working with the Edison company and getting water, mm -hmm. you know, moving. So it was just fascinating to me. Um, so up in the high Sierras, I met my wife. She was working at one of the lodges. Um, we're way up there. She actually ran a boat. Um, we're cutting trees today. All good. <laughs> Tending vines, cutting trees, mowing grass. Um, met my wife up there. She was uh, working in one of the lodges. She was actually running a boat across a rather large lake, getting supplies to PCT hikers in the backcountry, which was pretty, you know, in and of itself, just a, a, quite a haul to get stuff um, from point A to point B. Anyway, um, 
we the season ended her and i were about to go our separate ways and decided that just wasn't going to happen and ended up uh traveling um buying a camper and a truck and just kind of cruising around the states landed in uh colorado and ultimately what i'm getting at is how i got into wine here got found her way out into colorado we were in Glenwood Springs. We actually settled in for a little bit. I think we needed, uh, you know, uh, I think we just needed some cash. So we got a couple, got some jobs. I got a job at a uh, at a wine shop, and um, she got a job at a hardware store, I think. And the plan was we were just going to work for like six months, and you know, hit the road again and do it somewhere else and do it somewhere else. We were just having fun. We were young and didn't, yeah, that's what we were up to. So. Um, yeah, but I got a job at a wine shop in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Um, I, the owner there, or the, the, at the time, Bob Jenkins, who's still a dear friend of mine today, he, uh, um, it's a surprise, he, uh, yeah, I'm actually really surprised he even took me in, but whatever. He says he saw something to me, I don't know what he saw aside from like a, you know, like a, a just a, a young kid with dreadlocks down to his ass. and. <laughs> You know, just somebody out having a good time snowboarding and mountain biking. But um, but he brought me in, and he was just this an incredible advocate for employee education. He um, was kicking me out to just the distributor tastings, inviting me into when sales reps would come with their bag and tasting wines. You know, he actually sent me off to Aspen uh, Food and Wine uh, Fest back in the day. This is in the mid '90s. This is like '90. 93, four, five. And, uh, and that's where, ultimately, I mean, that was where I learned, you know, my love for wine. And then, you know, the fact that, you know, of course there's the retail and the wholesale setting, and that's kind of what I was into for those, those years, and ended up doing a lot of wine buying for the shop, and um, thought that I'd play around with wholesale, but then one day realized there was the whole production end of it and that you know there's you know careers in this field that you could get into so um one of the last things he kicked me out to do was actually put on in aspen colorado by the oregon i don't know what they called it back then but oregon wine advisory board i think is what it was called and they were doing this national tour of kind of just, you know, marketing the, the Willamette Valley wine scene. You know, this is kind of, at least as far as I knew, back then in the mid-90s, you know, one of the first kind of mar big national marketing pushes. And they'd hit, like, as far as I remember, it was like New York, Chicago, Aspen, L.A., that type of thing. And I spent uh, two days, one night, Kind of, if you can jump forward to like maybe like a, a little mini OPC Oregon Pinot Camp, uh, like road show, and hung out, listened, learned, tasted, ate, and just the, had that classic camaraderie of you know meeting the growers and meeting the winemakers and talking about the Willamette Valley and what makes it so great to grow wine grapes here, especially Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and. Um, that was it. I think we'd packed up within two months and, uh, you know, and just and came out to the valley. So um, that was in, oh, probably December of 1996. So when I landed, I'd, I had my little book, you know, that I got at the show. 
and um, started flipping through it. That's actually how I always used to. I used to get. I never had a problem getting a job. I would just open up a phone book and I'd be like, "Oh, Marina, that looks like fun." Or <laughs> golf course, and I just cold call. I'd be like, "Hey, I'm looking for work," and I always had work. And and I just so I did the same thing with the wine book. Started at the A's, ended at the Z's, got a couple interviews lined up and, and two job offers. And um, these are just general seller hand positions and um, accepted one. So that was in February of 96. I started my first job making wine with the crew at Willamette Valley Vineyards. Um, it, was, it was great. So um, at... This wasn't great, but I, I kind of came in in, a, in this in-between phase where the old winemaker, Dean Cox, had, had just passed away, I think, maybe, I don't know. It had only been months prior to my arriving. Um, the assistant winemaker, Forrest Klafke, um, was in charge of making the wines, and he hired me. Oh, the crazy thing was, actually, too, one of the gentlemen that had put on that road show um, was the GM at Willamette at the time that I was hired too, and I got to see him there, and I think that connection certainly helped as well, but yeah, that was Kevin Chambers. <laughs> um, so um, anyway, hire, uh, Forrest hired me, I think basically because of, I just had some, I think, just general good mechanical skills. Like I knew what the pump was, and I knew how to wire the board up to it, and I knew what was in and what goes out, and like, you know, ultimately, you know, anyone, if you've made wine for five or six years, can make wine really well if you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. But to actually run a facility is a whole other thing. And there's a there's a, a lot of moving parts. And, you know, it's important to have people that don't just pick up the phone when something breaks, but can actually take care of the problem and keep things running. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's why he hired me. Plus, the Kevin Chambers connection helped, too. But... Uh, Let's see. Yeah, I worked at Willamette Valley, and then Joe Dobbs came on in like June or July of '96. And basically, my whole tenure there was with Joe and Forrest. Uh, Joe and I actually left six years later in '02, just months apart from each other as well. Onto you know our our you know grass is greener, whatever that was. And uh, yeah, it was a great tenure there. Uh, love the experience. Uh, you learn a lot fast. The place doesn't stop. It's going, going, going. And um, kind of that they had a lot of estate vineyards then, of course, in and around the winery and the, also the Tualatin estate. Mm -hmm. um, but a big part of their fruit portfolio was from third-party growers as well. Uh, and we probably dealt with a couple dozen other growers. So. When I was given the opportunity, after I had left, to actually start my own winery um, from the ground up, and I kind of took that part of the model where I'd already, I'd known, uh, I knew all these third-party growers personally. I'd been to many of their homes for dinner and this mm -hmm. and that, and they were excited about this new project as well, and they basically helped me get up and running with just being able to source premium fruit from throughout the Willamette Valley. Um, so that project from 2002 to basically 2010, eight more years, I worked at a winery called Belle Valle, and that was in uh, Corvallis. And it was your kind of your one of the 
more like one of the first kind of warehouse wineries, you know, back then in 02. Anyway, now it's kind of commonplace. But um, yeah, so I spent a lot of years basically sourcing fruit from just gorgeous, you know, high-end premium vineyards from throughout the Willamette Valley and blending, making a half dozen Pinot Noirs and uh, a Pinot Gris, I think, because somebody wanted a white wine at the time. But uh, um, yeah, we did that. The company um, kind of shifted focus, long story short. Um, and ultimately what it is today is still happening is um, it's a custom crush facility. Mm -hmm. um, I was getting to this point where I needed more, um, I wanted more focus. You get that? <laughs> that was the treat. Nice. <laughs> um, Anyway, my, my, I think like most winemakers, you know, again, like you make wine for five or six years and if you're paying attention, you can, you can do a pretty good job on it given that the source, you know, is quality. Um, w that I just needed more control over what I was making wine from. And so I'd actually been sourcing fruit from the left coast estate, which is where we're at right now. Um, for about three or four years, um, really beautiful estate uh, vineyards uh, in the Van Duzer corridor, all in marine sedimentary soils, um, and had been just taken by it, you know, year after year after year, especially after I figured out how to make that wine. And um, yeah, one day the GM and I were talking um, about yeah, just kind of kicking around the idea of maybe me coming over here and um, making the wine. Mm -hmm. So at the time, Luke McCollum was um, running everything here and the place was growing. You know, he's trying to grow 150 acres of grapes. He's trying to make, you know, all the wine. He's trying to keep all the administrative things going and um, he needed to start delegating. So that's where I came in as well as some other staff were in hospitality and sales. And I think the company just kind of at that point, not just because of me, but because of it leveled up with a whole new staff and um, started taking it to that next level. So yeah, the family, the Faf family who owns Left Coast, they're wonderful um, in, in many senses, but in the sense that they just let me um, take my time. They're like, Joe, do what you have to do. Don't burn any bridges, finish your job and we're here, so when you're done. And so I spent 10 kind of consulting in the winery here and um, uh, basically, yeah, I think I started in June of 11 at Left Coast Estate. So yeah, and then again, didn't burn any bridges and get everything running just fine over at Belle Valley. I left and people got into my place and yeah, it was great and just kind of moved over here. So now, you know, I'm making, oh, more or less 20, 25,000 cases of wine off of 150, 160 acres uh, planted. And um, since I started in 2011, it's just the winemaker and, um, and, and barely overseeing the vineyards. But now my job here is I'm, I direct all the vineyard and winery operations, and that's kind of where I'm at today. So. Uh, goal met, you know, basically, I have, there are no excuses. <laughs> you know, girl, yeah, my GM tells me, uh, Taylor, our uh, FAF, a family member, he, um, 
he just tells me, you know, what I've got to ideally make every year. Mm -hmm. And so we, we grow it and we follow it through. All right, I'm going to back up just for a second here. You mentioned the kind of the way you got your wine education through wine shop and through a lot of tastings and a lot of a lot of that. So tell me about learning wine, both like sort of the, the nomenclature of wine and also it's like developing your palate. How long did it take and, and what were some of the like the most the key parts for you in terms of feeling like you understood wine? Mm, gotcha. Well, I mean, the the learning about making wine was was just through the trade. Um, it was just you know coming in with a good work ethic, head down, um, having incredible winemakers around me, and just watching and learning and just paying attention to detail. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the learning is constant, especially now in the vineyard. I mean, your, your ethos changes every seven to ten years every decade you're you know and and now it's just and i i see it perpetuating but a less is more mm -hmm. you know from the end back as far as in the winery the inputs are less and less and less and less every year mm -hmm. and the inputs in the uh, vineyard are gradually becoming less and less and less now that we're figuring out how to manage them and um, produce quality. Mm -hmm. So, um, as far as learning, you know, how, when did my palate come and all that? I, I mean, I'm still. It's. It's. I'm not. I could never say. Oh, I nailed it in <laughs> 2002. I mean, I'm constantly. I mean, it's just constantly evolving. You know, same with. You know, just the. Oregon Pinot Noir and Oregon Chardonnay that they're always evolving so our palates have to evolve with them right I mean if we get stuck in you know 2010 it, it, nothing's gonna get potentially better or we'll never learn from our mistakes so um, yeah stylistically you know things are evolving and which is important because Oregon is a distinct and unique wine group. The Willamette Valley is distinct and unique, and um, we need to just keep, you know, you know, focusing on that, and so that we're distinct and unique from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. We are already, but you know, there's room for growth there mm -hmm. still. Tell me about your first year at Willamette Valley, what, what do you remember about your first harvest or first time, first time through the year? What were, what was the job like and what attracted you to it? Oh, to my first year there, what attracted me to it was, you know, proceedingly, like just the, the idea of what I thought I knew from visiting with these winemakers and wine growers. Of course, reality just smacks you in the face when you're on the floor, it's 2 a.m there's 60 tons of fruit on the crush pad, it's raining, there's no cover, you're freaking cold. That was horrible, <laughs> it was horrible, I had a night shift. So we'd pull in at six in the evening and leave at seven in the morning. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think I swore I'd never do that again. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, here, I think I'm going on 25 vintages this year. But um, but you know you, you, that was that was that and you know, then you have you know it's over you have time to reflect any hardship if you're at, at all aware it, you're, you you need you should have learned something from and so when the dust settled and I did and 
I moved forward and the next year I was given maybe a responsibility and you know and not just a general um, work situation but a responsibility to like run the presses or something like that or um, whatever it was and then it grew from there I think by year three um, probably I was r running the night shift so I had my whole uh, crew of a dozen people and and so you know it, and you feed off of that of course and um, yeah it just went from there Tell me, at what point did you start you mentioned sort of five or six years of making wine you feel like you kind of you kind of understand how to make wine if you're paying attention uh, at what point did that five or six years start for you what point did you start sort of seeing the winemaking process for what it was and understanding it kind of all the way through well when I started it was so five or six years after 96 is 02 um, the start of Belle Valley, um, a, a winery that I got to design within certain boundaries and and build a business plan for. <laughs> so yeah, I thought I knew it all then. <laughs> but in hindsight, I mean, again, yeah, you just, you, there's so much to learn, but we did great. O2 was a great vintage to start your own winery. It, you know, Chimp could have made wine that year. I mean, it was like the fruit was just beautiful. You didn't have to do anything to it. It was perfect. Mother Nature set the, 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 the fruit set. It was just mild and a long, you know, just Indian summer type thing and, and late fall. And just, yeah, it was cool. This high acid, low alcohol, physiologically ripe. Just everything, you know, that's why you want to be in Oregon for those wines, those vintages, and we hang out and wait for those, you know. But, um, um, yeah, so, yeah, I just thought I, yeah, it was probably around then. But, you know, in hindsight, no, I didn't know anything. I was lucky with the O2 vintage. Then the O3 came and slapped me in the face and said, you know nothing, sir. Um, that was just an incredibly hot vintage. It was kind of like actually 2020, except for the fire. In 03, we had those Northwest Columbia winds roll out hot. And you, what we typically pick up against walls of rain weather, we were picking up against heat and um, desiccation, not desiccation, but raisining. We were just like really trying to get fruit off the vine before it went completely raisin. So, and it was a hot summer, so we didn't have the physiological ripeness in 03. Um, and, but we had, you know, the heat at the very end. So what happened is it basically shriveled up and concentrated all these very unripe flavors. So, and unripe tannins. And so they were like black, inky, concentrated, high acid, extremely tannic wines that I'd love to make over, do over. I need a do over on that vintage. <laughs> we learned a lot. Uh, you mentioned sort of the, some of the sites you were working with. You had, you'd had kind of access through Wyoming Valley Vineyards and, and kind of grew with that. Uh, tell me about uh, working with various sites and, and learning, <coughs> kind of learning the vineyards you're working with. What, what do you need to know as a winemaker buying third-party fruit, and how long does it take you to know it? Well, I mean, it all comes down to personal preference. I mean, of course, if you've got, you know, you're making wine for somebody, um, that's one thing, and, but you always are, and ultimately, I've been lucky enough to always been able to just make it for myself. So then you're like, all right, well, what do I like? What differentiates one vineyard from another? Well, obviously, microclimate, soil. I mean, terroir. It's, 
It's, um, it's everything, obviously. Um, it's the, the unique conditions within the site that you're working from. And um, I originally had uh, gravitated towards warmer volcanic sites, like in, in like mid-elevation, I would say between like, like five and 700 feet. Um, it was just kind of what I like to drink and what I like to make. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, we're always evolving and or devolving. I don't know. <laughs> but we're always moving on one direction or another. And um, and then I started, you know, playing around with more sites like this, you know, that are on these old ancient seabeds. And um, and again, maybe a little lower. These the, these soils only poke their heads out of the ground between like 250 and 500 feet in elevation, and then you start getting into the volcanic. Um, so, um, you know, that, I mean, that's just, uh, to your question though, that's how I would pick fruit, basically, on what I like to drink, mm -hmm. where did that come from, and then just really figuring out, you know, those where those places were. And of course, that said, you know, we were still had a wide array of different sites we were working with, sedimentary sites, volcanic sites, all elevations, high elevations, low elevations. It was a way to not put all your eggs in one basket, of course, and diversify. And ultimately, in the end, you're going to have something really sweet to work with for those higher end bottlings. And the, the blends for your estate bottlings always come out, you know, very vindicative of just whatever that vintage had to give you. You said something earlier about sort of learning to work with this particular fruit and the in the Van Duzer. What's different about it here? What did you have to learn to <coughs> make it the best? Um, probably they can. You can really easily over extract this uh, fruit here. Um, so we're on marine sedimentary soils. The top soils are pretty shallow. I think uh, that. You know, not all marine sedimentary is shallow, um, but in this case, you, you have two things that happen, and, what, and I'm looking at the vineyards, like kind of envisioning this, but, so you have these old ancient seabeds. This marine sedimentary, by the way, is just like basically sand and silt that found its way from the atmosphere to the bottom of the ocean. The weight of the ocean just smashed on it for a million years, I guess, and created you know, our, our bedrock in essence. And, um, and so that, and that's what we grow on here. Everything on the estate is that. Um, and then we have topsoils, of course, but we have very shallow topsoils. And, and, and the reason I think, and actually a, a friend, Andy Gallagher, who's our soil guy in the Lima Valley, um, is when those Missoula floods came down from Montana through the Columbia Gorge and backfilled into the Willamette Valley. Um, in these, these foothills between the Cascades and the coastal range, we have these little outcroppings of hills. And so what happens is, you know, when, w there were some bottlenecks in, in which when those flows came down, they got smashed tighter and started gaining velocity. And so in areas in these foothills, we have scouring of topsoil. So there, there's just nothing but these, you know, basically we have, you can, at the top of that hill right there, you can dig three inches, four inches and find seashells. So that said, water holding capacity is very minimal and that creates a devigorated vine. Mm -hmm. 
ultimately a smaller cluster, a smaller berry, skin to juice ratios a lot less, very concentrated, mm -hmm. potentially very tannic wines. Mm -hmm. So um, after making those very concentrated tannic wines, <laughs> I, uh, you know, we started learning how to you know, basically just ease up mm -hmm. and, and, and create softer wines that basically told more, told more of the story of where these, these, these wines were grown. Mm -hmm. And there's a little more to it as far as that, then it's even accentuated as far as that concentration of all those um, by the Van Duzer Corridor and the prevailing winds that kick out and at about in about three hours at about one o'clock every day till the evening um, it just blows through here and again that just sucks the the moisture the water out of the the clusters and creates a more concentrated wine so really unique growing area right here it's different it's different the Ola Hills are just adjacent to us it's different it's you know and it's not better or worse it's just what it is and that and you have to figure out where you're growing your grapes and how to make those wines so given all those factors and all the kind of uniqueness of this site and of this area how long does it take you to feel comfortable making the kind of the key decisions you have to make on a site like this how long do you, how long till you know your site oh Oh God, I'm st I learn every year because this, this left coast estate's really unique. It's got, I mean, one, two, three, four, five, six, really distinct and unique vineyards within the estate itself. It's not just one monoculture cut out like the top of this picnic table. It's, I mean, these are, we've got different elevations, row orientations, soil depth, um, and, and, and then different aspects that, you know, allow for more or less sun and more or less wind. And so, um, so anyway, it's a, con it's a constant, yeah. It'd be boring if it weren't. <laughs> you said something earlier that I thought was really interesting. You talked about how, like, your palate changes as, as the wines here change, as the grapes here change. So how, in the, in the years you've been making wine in Oregon, <coughs> how have Pinot Noir and Chardonnay changed and what are they like now versus sort of the Pinot Noir Chardonnays you were introduced to here in, in, in the mid-90s? In, in my opinion, in the mid-90s, we were, maybe what we had to compare to was, you know, the, just California Chardonnay. So now, if that were the case, and I think it was, um, we're now basically trying to make this warm climate wine out of cool climate grapes. And it just didn't work, and it went away. I mean, Chardonnay, for the most part, went away. And by the way, there are total exceptions to this. There are producers that have kicked out great Chardonnay throughout the 90s and 2000s. But there are far and few in between, mm -hmm. and especially compared to today. I think everybody's jumped on this bandwagon. Um, but anyway, basically embracing um, maybe more of that Chablis-esque style of Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. So um, embrace, you know, just embracing these clones that maybe retain a lot of acid, you know, and don't, the pH doesn't get incredibly high and, and, and picking at lower sugars and, and just creating maybe a Chardonnay that it drinks well today, but why not let it lay down for 10 or 15 years mm -hmm. like the great Chardonnays of the world. So. Um, I mean, for Chardonnay, that, that's been, I mean, you've probably, doing what you're doing, you've heard this, this is, a, this is it, so. 
um, it's been really exciting. And yeah, why shouldn't we lay, be able to lay down a Chardonnay just like a Pinot Noir? There's no excuse for it. So I think that's something I've, as well as a lot of my uh, peers have embraced, mm -hmm. and um, and it's working. I think that. It's amazing to me how many people that you, you're like, you're gonna try the Chardonnay, and they're like, I don't like Chardonnay, and, but I'll taste it, and then they love it. And then, yeah, it's just like, we just need to get it in the, more and more of the hands of you know, these folks that basically have this idea of Chardonnay that isn't what we're doing here. It's what, you know, the, the idea of what Chardonnay is isn't, is somewhere else, mm -hmm. yeah, so. Um, Pinot Noir, <laughs> I don't know. I think really, I hope the focus for Pinot Noir has been just a more, and you know, all, everything we grow in the Willamette Valley, but just that less is more kind of attitude. You know, every time you do something to your wine in the winery, you're basically adding a layer, a, a veil between what it truly is and maybe what you're trying to make it. So, the wines that I fall in love with are the wines that are just truly indicative of where they're grown, that have that sense of place. And you can tell because you can tell because they're different. What happens when you start making wine and meddling with wine and sticking your fingers in the wine is now all of, I mean, all those winemakers that are doing that are using the same product. And now all the wines start tasting the same. And there's no differentiating between one and another. And I am generalizing, right? But this is what could be a problem in the f now and in the future. And I, I just hope that we can fall back from that and really start working on taking care of our vineyards and letting nature take its course in a, in a more natural way. This is still agriculture, but we've just got to figure out how to minimize the inputs in the vineyard. We've got to figure out how to minimize the amount of water we put on our vines. It's going to become a commodity even here in the Willamette Valley very soon. Um, and there are ways, there are really, really simple ways. We just have to forget what we think we know, remember what we did know a long time ago, and uh, maybe retool a little bit and um, get back to the essence of, you know, it's a, this natural product and, um, you know, all that said, you know, I would never let that ethos or, or an ego get in the way of making a good wine. You know, it's great to have the tools and the knowledge and the know-how to make sure that, you know, we can, you know, if something zigs, we can zag it right back. But, um, but that's kind of what my hopes are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, tell me about the, the farming here. You mentioned kind of director of viticulture and, and winemaking here. So tell me about the farming here. How, is it, how has it changed since you've been here? What, 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 how would you describe the farming? And, and do you have goals for uh, more change to come? Yeah, totally. Um, well, let's just say since I started uh, just in just the 18 vintage, um, we are taking baby steps, you know, so, you know, I, the, oh, this isn't my vineyard, it's the Fat Family's vineyard. Um, there are a lot of people employed here, and we all want to stay employed, so, we, you know, I'm not going to just, again, jump into something that I'm not totally aware of. Um, but that said, um, since the 18 Vintage, we've 
eliminated herbicides in roughly half of the vineyard. Um, we have 14, what is it, 14, 24, 32, about 36 acres that we've converted for the last, uh, well actually only 14 acres for the last four years to an organic program and the balance, the 30 some acres now um, is being farmed organically. And anyway, we'll, we'll keep moving towards that. Um, next year in 2021 will be the elimination of herbicides throughout the vineyards. Um, we're going to talk as a, a group this week actually about what that's gonna take, make it happen, and then uh, ultimately in, you know, in successive years, but hopefully not too far out, eliminating the use of herbicides on the entire state. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot of grounds here. It's a 500 acre property and um, they're easy to use and they're effective. But, um, you know, these are just some of the steps that mm -hmm. we're looking at in the vineyard and, uh, you know, and, and the whole, because mm -hmm. it's not, the vineyard is the whole 500 acres, even though it's only 150. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all the, the greenways, the oak savannas, the grasslands, everything. So it's all intertwined, all interconnected. And we'll start with the vineyards, but ultimately we have to be talking about this whole thing as a living organism, not just the vineyards. So given the, given all we've talked about with, with the vineyards and the, and the space here, what is unique about the wines you're creating here? What's what's different? What makes them like left coast? What, what makes them unique yeah. to the space? Well, the terroir. So uh, the marine sedimentary soils that we've discussed um, and the Van Duzer corridor. Mm -hmm. So a little more about that. We touched on the prevailing winds that hit every day, the, the concentration of as a result. Um, we, the other thing is just the what comes with that is ultimately um, lower growing degree units. Um, so we ideally um, will have longer hang time. So, you know, the falls in the Willamette Valley can be rather abrupt, you know, summer, summer, done, winter. <laughs> From, you know, one day to the next. So um, again, though, ideally, if we have a long extended fall, um, we have just a really cool growing season and what we get out of that and what I hang on for every year and we get every two, every three years, maybe one. Have we got one after another? No, not in the last decade. But um, what does that look like? It's just incredibly physiologically ripe, phenolically ripe fruit at low sugar, you know, like 22, 23 bricks mm -hmm. and just black, ripe, beautiful wine um, with, you know, acid retention and low alcohol. And you can, you know, I used to judge maybe the quality of a bottle of wine and whether or not I could drink the entire thing and not be overwhelmed by one aspect of it or another. So like, you know, like it's like the best bites of food are the first two or three bites. After that, you don't taste anything in particular anymore. So with wine, I think that if you can drink a, a few glasses or hell the bottle and not be overwhelmed by alcohol and not be overwhelmed by acidity or tannin or you know bitterness or whatever that's balance right mm -hmm. and you can get that if you have that hang time without the sugar and all that alcohol to obscure it all so um in the best years th that's what the left coast estate can give and to me that 
that to me is perfection. Mm -hmm. Not to everybody, but um, God, those wines are just, that's, that's the why I'm here. That's why I'll be here. So uh, this site, you mentioned 500 acres, lots and lots of vineyards. What are the biggest challenges for you? Uh, what, 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 what uh, you mentioned kind of that your year no longer has any real downtime in it. <laughs> what are the biggest challenges for you uh, and what are the, what are the, the parts you look forward to the most? Mm. The, I guess the biggest challenges are, well, I guess that we only, you know, we only get to do this, like, you know, if you're lucky enough to, or unlucky enough to have started what I did when you're 21, <laughs> 22 years old, um, is that we only get to do it like 30 or 40 times. So figuring it out in this in a, in a, in a lifetime, it's too short. But um, but yeah, so that's the challenge. The challenge is really not chasing it, but somehow staying at par or getting ahead of it, and 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 always trying to. You know, every decision we make is is y y to figure out what it is you're ever you're trying to accomplish. It takes two or three or four years, mm -hmm. or longer in the vineyard. I mean, in the vineyard, it's it's eight, nine, ten years because before you can really like feel what it is that that dirt, what those vines are going to give you. Mm -hmm. So, so that that would be you know one of the hardest things to try to you know keep up with I guess. But um, you had a second part of that question. What keeps what keeps you coming back? What do you look forward to? Well, I guess just those challenges. <laughs> I mean, how boring would it be to not have something like these big you know like life goals? You know, um, so so just that, just trying to stay at par, stay ahead of you know, these decisions that you can't get anything back from for three or four or 10 years, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and just constantly thinking about it. So you don't clock in or out here. You just, it's always on your mind and it's a good thing. I'm glad I, I found it. Well, speaking of challenges, let's talk about 2020 for a second and the kind of the dueling challenges of last year. We start with the pandemic. Um, pandemic hits uh, last spring. Tell me about sort of initial reaction, both personally and professionally, and, and what are the decisions and changes you had to make here to keep things going last year? What, what changed in your kind of work life? <sighs> Not much, quite frankly. You know, a lot changed, but like physically, when you think back on like getting up, you know, g getting ready, being here, doing it, no, this, none of this stops. Um, that said, you know, like a lot of wineries, we had to, you know, pull the plug on a, a lot of like, like uh, capital projects, just like intensive projects. We wanted to, you know, make sure that April of 2020, as far as, you know, wine sales go, wasn't going to happen in May and June and July, because then it's all done, right? Um, but it didn't. And, you know, it's, we all settled into our houses and started popping bottles. Um, so that was good. Now, um, personally, certainly we can, we all have, you know, our, our stuff with that as far as that happening, but, um, you know, just being, just learning, we all learned what to do. Right. So we'll be pros if it ever happens again in our lifetime, but, um, especially from all the mistakes potentially that we made too. But, uh, but yeah, so on a personal level, just all the, the learning how to do everything and, you know, how to stay 
I haven't had a cold in 18 months. You get a cold like twice a year. <laughs> um, just a common cold. But at work, none of this stops. We had, we were here. We had to, mm -hmm. because if we, you would just there's, if you weren't out there taking care of the vines, it would take, it would take a year or two to regain, you know, what it, it was you were doing out mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So um, that said, you know, there's you know in essence this this all this noise and this war of everything going on outside of here and that was slightly distracting of course but um i don't know humans are good at just putting their heads down and and, and getting things done especially when things get a little thick and a little crazy and we did well, and then of course the second part of that is is the fires last you mentioned last harvest so tell me about that. <laughs> I remember vaguely some smoke around here. Really? <laughs> tell me, tell me about that. Anything, same kind of thing. As it's happening, what are the decisions you have to make, and what are the yeah. what are the the changes you have to make? Yeah. Well, you know, none of us in the Willamette Valley had uh, experience with an event to that degree in 2020. That was just horrible. You couldn't for the camera. You know, you couldn't see that truck or the trees in the background. It was that thick, and it was that thick for about like about seven or eight days. So enough to basically, you know, impart those phenolics into the cuticle of the grape, and it's there, it's done, it's it's in there. So um, anyway, what did we do? We basically, I was asked to go ahead and make as much wine as you think you need to make red wine that, and, and learn, and learn as much as you can possibly learn. Um, in the background, and we at Left Coast have always made, well, for 10 years now, we've made a white Pinot Noir. We, um, we embrace it, uh, we distribute it, and I don't know, 40 states nationally, all the provinces, overseas, the UK. Um, we make in any, and so now jumping forward again, typically I make about like 10 to 15,000 cases of red wine every year. This year I made about 10 to 15,000 cases of white Pinot Noir and it came out beautifully. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a great vintage. Mm -hmm. It really was just set up so nicely. Mm -hmm. Mother Nature set the crop. It was light, you know, there, but it, and it was just a mild season. Everything was gorgeous. At the end, it got a little warm, obviously, but the whites are electric. They're focused. They're beautiful. They have everything, the Chardonnays, the Rosés, the white Pinots. We still made them a little bit differently to, to try to mitigate and minimize the smoke potential impact it would have on the wine. But, um, but yeah, we just switched gears. We can't do that every year. We can't do that every other year, but... Um, we were able to do it this one year, and um, it's bottled. It's on the shelves, and it's it's selling. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. So yeah, big shift. Big shift. This place moves runs smoothly, but like only because of how we do things, you know, and like, and then when you know you're and you just flip it, you know, and uh, it was it was like re it was actually a lot of fun. It was like learning everything all over again as far as production goes and how to you know keep things running through the cellar mm -hmm. like first year on the job at a new winery <laughs> kind of exciting so between between COVID and the fires obviously uh, <laughs> an interesting harvest last year so uh, tell me about 
the sort of what were the logistics you had to work through that were different other than making it a whole different kind of or a more of a different kind of wine what were some of the other logistics you had to deal with in terms of making sure your grapes were okay making sure your people were okay sure yeah well we just didn't pick first of all we weren't going to ask our crews to go out there i mean i was feeling claustrophobic just you know maybe but yeah so but it was okay, you know, again, in the corridor here, we were a little delayed in, you know, when we pick our fruit. Mm -hmm. And um, quite frankly, uh, I can't remember the dates anymore. So like the 21st or something, it all started, I forget. And then it lasts about eight or nine days. But quite frankly, we didn't get really started picking until the first week of October. And by then, not only had it cleared up, and my dates could be wrong, but let's just shift it where when things cleared up about a week later and after a little bit of rain, mm -hmm. we started picking our fruit. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we did nothing. We were just close the doors, close the windows and just keep, keep, yeah, keep trying to breathe. It was just so thick. <coughs> um, but yeah, nothing out in the vineyard was happening during all that. You can't, yeah. So when you saw the fruits, uh, what was the what was your reaction to it? I, I, if you came back after the smoke, you now you're picking it. What did it look like? What did you and what did you have to do to it to kind of figure out what to do next? Well, after the 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 event, um, you know, again it rained. You know, subsequently but prior to that though, you know, like yeah, there was a lot of organic material falling from the sky in the vineyards. It was thick, um, but. But it all washed off. Um, yeah, the crazy thing is, is you can't, you can't taste it. You you you, you pull the grapes, and you know, you throw a few berries in your mouth, and you couldn't really, you couldn't say, oh my god, this tastes like an ashtray. No, it's just sweet, beautiful, fruity fruit. Mm -hmm. um, but when then you get a little heat, you get a little alcohol in the mix, um, you know, things start extracting that weren't extracting in your mouth otherwise. And, uh, and then you start picking it up. So yeah, we ran a course of experiments, probably about 28 different experiments in the cellar. Um, my take, you know, these wines, when you get um, just, let's just say somebody off the street to taste these wines, they like them, they're fine. Uh, as a winemaker, um, I, I, I don't like, you know, first off, it's hard, like, so we've done everything to mitigate this potential risk. Um, and then, and, and so, and, and then let's say it worked. But you, all this, what you did, like, now they're not, they're unrecognizable. These aren't the wines I make, you know? So, like, even if you've done a good job at doing that, now all of a sudden the house style's just blown up. Like, it's just, everything's different. So, and it's with reds, the whites, everything was sound just the way we always made them but yeah that was kind of disheartening you know I was like hey this this kind of works oh but that's I don't that's not what we do here so so yeah that's something I'm still kind of reckoning with at this point I'm talking a year So we talked a bit earlier about how sort of the wines here have changed since you've been in, in Oregon. Tell me about how the industry has changed. What, what's changed in the industry in the, in the 25 years you've been here? Oh, in 25 years? <laughs> well, we've learned a lot, Jesus, in the vineyards and in the wineries, for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
I still have a, I have like a 1993 Oregon issue of the Wine Spectator and it's, uh, and it's got all our, all the, the, the good old guys in there talking about growing grapes and winemaking. Oh my God, we were just so young and such a fledgling industry even then. Um, that we've learned and, you know, it's just been exponential. I mean, in, you know, the, my first decade and certainly in the, in the second, I mean, you know, any, yeah, it's just information, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so many people all over the world growing grapes with the one, you know, the sole intention of making great wine and all that information's available. Everybody's networked. It's yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I just think that I, I kid, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of things that have changed all for the better. And can you imagine what will happen in the next 20? I'm actually afraid for the next 20. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. That was my next question. So let's talk about the next 20. Yeah, not afraid, but no, there are some actually solid things. I love like kind of remote, all the remote, um, basically mechanics that, you know, are coming, becoming available. So the fact that I can pick up my phone and, and, and look at um, soil mo moisture at four and six and 24 and 36 inches and turn on some water. The shit like that, that's gonna be really awesome. And I know a lot of that's happening in the wineries as well, especially during harvest and tank fermentations and, and temperatures. Mm -hmm. um, just another thing like, yeah, but no, there are a lot of great yeah, things to look forward to with regard to um, not just trying to get six hours of sleep and and be worrying the whole time but actually having that information and ability to make the adjustment if necessary obviously you've seen a lot of growth in terms of numbers of everything numbers of labels numbers of wineries numbers of uh, vineyards uh, do you see that continuing you see that the growth of Oregon wine continuing I have to imagine I've not given it much thought but um, yeah I mean yeah, totally. You two want to start a winery someday. I mean, everybody wants to make, you know, get in this and, and, and why not? So, yeah, just, um, you know, just always, I always backpedal from, you know, how much are you going to make and who are you selling it to? And then that often, you, you, you know, it's, it's a starting point. <laughs> but, um, yeah, why not? Uh, to this degree, you know, there's, the Willamette Valley is small with regard to premium vineyard growing sites. Um, there's <clears throat> not an incredible amount of room left for those sites. I think for more production-oriented projects, absolutely, there's, there's a potential for some massive growth still. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, at some point, Probably, unfortunately, fortunately for some, unfortunately for the consumer, um, you know, what does that do? It just prices increase because the supply versus demand is just, it, it's, it's flipped. So, um, so yeah, I guess if anything, unfortunately, again, for the consumer, and I consider myself one, um, the, uh, yeah, it, things are going to become kind of prohibitive to even purchase. Mm -hmm. Who knows when that'll happen, but yeah, that's ultimately, you know, where it's going to go. Mm -hmm. And what about for you as you look ahead for your own future? What's, what's coming next for you, uh, both uh, sort of here and in any other projects you're, you're kind of considering? Oh, 
I can't wait to look back in this in 10. But um, yeah, no, I've just got so much to accomplish here still that um, this is easily my next 10 years. I've got my own label. I've had it since 2010. Uh, it's just my namesake. I don't have any brick and mortar winery or vineyards. Um, it's called J. Wright Vintner. Um, Left Coast has embraced the brand. In fact, they bought it from me and allowed me to pick fruit from the estate and source fruit and make it here. And they've helped with distribution and I've got it in a number of states now. It's, it's just a beautiful marriage and it's been a lot, of, a lot of fun. And it's allowed me to basically, you know, everything's pretty much said here with regards to like labels and wine and just skews. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, but this is, I make, you know, you don't know, but I hate when people say that, you know, <laughs> seven, you know, I make about 700 cases of wine a year. And um, the, uh, and I, I'm able to like just cherry pick, like just crazy cool stuff that might get lost in the blend otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, and these, and then um, just my fascination with different terroirs as well. So basically, you know, marine sedimentary, you know, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, I have uh, an incredible uh, volcanic uh, site. You know Tom Mortimer? Mm -hmm. have, you, have you met with him yet? You gotta do that, the guy's fascinating. <coughs> He's got like an 18, or maybe it's 11 acre vineyard up in the Shehala Mountains, but um, you know, we refer to growers like as growers, but he's he's like he doesn't just grow it; he gardens his vineyard. He knows every little thing about it. It's wonderful. So his west block is just literally planted in pitted uh, volcanic basalt. So the absolute opposite of where we're standing, and just being able to showcase things like that. And then another site in the Ola Amity where. Um, uh, we're pushing the limits on elevation, so at about a thousand feet, growing some triple seven and some pomard, and um, don't always get to make red wine out of that. But when it, it when it works, it's it's fabulous. So um, that's kind of where I'm at with that brand, and just being able to have fun with very small, very um, 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 just what am I trying to say? Just it's just small. Um, just purposeful sites, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just mm -hmm. like we're picking fruit here, not because it's available, but because of this, this, and this, mm -hmm. you know? Talk about, talk about pushing elevation at, at a thousand mm -hmm. feet. Do you see, have you seen it? Have, have you seen those grapes change in the, in the years you've been working with them? Have you seen them ripening more often or ripening <laughs> earlier? I think, no. When you get up to that, when you're up there at that point, you know, that 900 plus, in my opinion, depends where you're at always, but um, no, it is, you never know. It's a gamble. It is a gamble. That said, um, I mentioned Kevin earlier. His vineyard's not far from that one. I think his starts at a, I know it's well over a thousand, but 11, 1200 feet, but I think it's mostly planted to Chardonnay too. And that, that you can, I think you can nail that every year as well. So I think if you're flexible, higher elevations, you know, can make, you know, you just gotta think of it this way, like in great years, you make great red. And on not so great years, you'd be open to making a white wine or a sparkling base, you know? Not Ben, you know, that's the thing, you know, don't, Nobody's ever been successful trying to bend the will of, you know, the vineyard and the vintage. Embrace it, 
however great or bad it is, and you'll make great wine. As you look for the to, to the future, is the will we still be making pin, the pinots we're making now? As you look, in, the, in the same style at the same elevations in the future, or, or is that going to change? In your opinion. Um, well, well, I think that the Willamette Valley, I mean, you know, I have friends all over California making great Pinot Noir in much warmer climates than we have here. And in ours and our kids' lifetimes, I can't imagine the Willamette Valley changing to that. So not in the next hundred years, but who knows. The, um, so, I mean, there's a lot of room to, you know, in, in time and a potential curve upwards in heat to still make great wine in, in the far future, into the far future. Mm -hmm. So, um, stylistically, yeah, that's going to change things. It's part of terroir. It's going to, it's going to definitely, um, create riper things, but you know, we can plant at slightly higher elevations. We can plant at different uh, slopes and aspects. We can, um, of course, you know, different clones and rootstocks, you know, we can always, you know, kind of mitigate those things if we choose to. You know, some will just em embrace the hot weather and make big, rich Pinot Noirs as well. But um, uh, it's all good as long as you, you know, stylistically speaking, if, you, if you're into big, thick, rich Pinot Noirs, if you're totally into that and that's what you like and you believe in it, and then it's going to be good, you know? And, and I like those. I like a glass of them. They're great. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it, typically I want a second glass and maybe I'll just move on to something else at that point. So uh, what advice would you have for someone who is interested in joining the Oregon wine industry? What would, the, what would your words of wisdom be? Words of wisdom? Oh, yeah, just, just, just start. Start working. Get into it. Um, get, <laughs> I don't, you know, schools... It was great. I think that, you know, I didn't. Um, a lot of my friends haven't. Um, you know, everybody that works for me has. <laughs> Go figure. Um, but the, uh, the, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think you necessarily have to go to school. I think school's a great place to have fun and prove to yourself that you can do your chores. Um, but you know, get out, get into the wineries, go travel the world. You can hit three vintages up all over the world and learn about and get in the vineyard. You know, do that for three or four or five years, but get in the vineyard. That's where the wines are made, the great wines. Um, and um, yeah, just all of that. Just get out and get into it. You know, there's, why wait? Life's short. If you're only gonna, if you're gonna make wine, you only get to do it 30 or 40 times if you're lucky. So why waste any moment? Just get in there and start now, today, yesterday. <laughs> awesome. That's all the questions that I have for you. Yeah. Is there anything I, anything I didn't ask that I should have? No, I think covered? we're good. <laughs> Thank you so much yeah. for uh, your time, for your stories, for sharing well, thanks the space for thinking with us. About me. Absolutely. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. 
Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.